Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, this week, I have a great story uh, from all over the country, from the mid-80s, a time when uh, cocaine was king and it was clear in everybody's behavior. Okay. Um, this is, I'm going to call this episode Gun for Hire, The Bumbling Assassinations of Doc Savage. Doc Savage? This isn't the Wild West? No, we are going to talk this week about the, um, Doc Savage is like a pulp hero, but this, this, the one we're not talking about today is not him and is not any kind of hero. Um, Richard Doc Savage was a Vietnam veteran and... Um, kind of erstwhile law enforcement professional um, slash strip club owner who ran a murder for hire ring. I was going to say a successful murder for hire ring. <laughs> they managed to kill a few people, but we, we'll debate how successful this uh, uh, plot was mm -hmm. on behalf of Richard Savage uh, with killers and victims all over the country in 1985 to 87. Was it based in his strip club? Like, was that ground zero for his assassin program yes great yes it absolutely was <laughs> um and i think one of the interesting things about this story i mean first of all it's fascinating uh murder for hire we did um lake city quiet pills which could be could be that or could be absolutely nothing yes exactly uh, but the, <laughs> the kind of tantalizing possibility there was that like these ex-military guys were taking out contracts to uh, kill people, fly all over the country and, and murder people for money. And it was like, oh my God, this sounds like a movie. And they're scheduling it in the comments and the HTML sections of shoddy porn hosting sites. Yeah. And this is exactly like that, except replace the shoddy, um, like slowly loading internet porn with shoddy, like real life pornography, if you will. Mm. in this CD strip club that uh, Doc Savage owned. Ah, yes. Um, as I said, they did successfully take the lives of a few victims, unfortunately, and it was while police were investigating these this series of murders and attempted murders across the country that the threads started to begin to pull together between all these different cases. So I think it's really interesting from a police investigation standpoint, too. Um, mm -hmm. But at first... There was no clear motive for the murder of Anita Spearman, a 48-year-old assistant city manager for West Palm Beach, Florida, who was found bludgeoned to death in her bed on November 16th, 1985. Hmm. She had been a former reporter at the Palm Beach Post and then was the city editor, actually like one of the first newspaper editor, one of the first female newspaper editors in Palm Beach uh, for the Palm Beach Evening Herald. And um, she then kind of turned her knowledge of local officials. She sort of knew everybody in town, and she parlayed that into a successful career at City Hall, where she was apparently very well-liked. Um, but in 1985, she was dealing with a lot, because in the previous year, Anita had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. Um, now, breast cancer in 1985 had a 67% chance of survival. Mm -hmm. scary it's a scary diagnosis still obviously um but it, it was a scarier diagnosis then and uh, anita had opted for a double mastectomy the year before and had just had reconstructive surgery in october um to kind of get her body back to where she was comfortable with it mm -hmm. 
Um, now, oddly, her husband, Robert, had celebrated this reconstructive surgery with a flower arrangement he gave to her as a gift. It was in the shape of breasts. Okay. A little tone deaf for Robert. Well, you know, maybe maybe they just had a sense of humor about things, you I, know. I don't think Robert Spearman had that much of a sense of humor. He was uh, described as a stern, <laughs> seldom-spoken Korean war vet. Listen, Sean, I'm I'm conditioned to believe that he's going to be the culprit here, and he's going to be the reason that Anita is dead. So, of course... You know, I'm I'm very suspicious, but you know, maybe maybe they had a sense of humor. You know, police thought and always do uh, a similar thing to you. They started looking into the husband right away. Um, Robert Spearman had been Anita's boss at the Post when they met. Um, he had gone into newspaper typography after the Korean War, um, and then later on, he went into marine construction. He owned like a dockyard, and he did quite well for himself. Very uh, wealthy. Mm. But back to Anita's death. She was bludgeoned to death in her sleep, remember, and police found that the killer appeared to have taken her jewelry and a shotgun in the room that belonged to Robert Spearman. So that looks like a robbery, mm-hmm. um, but obviously suspicion falls immediately uh, on the husband as well. Now, a few days after Anita's death, a man named Sean Trevor Dutra, whose name will come up later, was pulled over and arrested in Maryville, Tennessee. I think just for a traffic violation. He, This happens a lot to Sean Dutra. He's not a great driver. Well, it happens a lot to, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming here, bad actors, you know? Like, a lot of these killers and things like that, they get caught because their taillights out or they're speeding, you know? So, I mean, I don't want to give any official ain't it scary advice, but if you're committing crimes drive really carefully yes certainly after you commit murder for hire uh is the time to stop at all the stoplights and stop signs (laughs) listen i'm not being specific here but i think you know crime or not we should drive pretty carefully okay that's (laughs) official word from carrie everybody (laughs) um so this dutra fella was pulled over and had a shotgun a machine pistol with a silencer on it, uh, illegal, of course, and $6,000 in cash on him. So police took him in, and he posted bond pretty quickly. It was $10,000 bond. Uh, he posted and was released before police called investigators in Florida and connected the dots uh, after mm. tracing that shotgun to Robert Spearman. Well, why would they release him before it was traced? He posted He posted bond, and they couldn't hold him for more than uh, 24 hours. All right. In time, it would come out that Robert Spearman, Anita's husband, had hired a ring of assassins to kill his wife. And he had found this group through an ad placed in Soldier of Fortune magazine. All right, so we've got a Fargo going, a bit of a Fargo. We do. The ad read as follows. Gun for hire. 37-year-old professional mercenary desires jobs. Vietnam veteran. Discreet and very private. Bodyguard, courier, and other special skills. (laughs) All jobs considered. Well, it's obvious what he's saying here. He's saying he'll kill people for hire. So how is this legal at all? Well, How is this allowed to be published? You're raising a question that many people raised uh, to Soldier of Fortune magazine Mm -hmm. and its publishers uh, in the wake of this case. So we'll get into that later. But yeah, uh, apparently this was a really common thing, this kind of classified ad, like around this same time. I read that around the same time in Soldier of Fortune, there was a classified ad offering $10,000 in gold for the live capture of Idi Amin. Oh. 
Did anyone try it? I'm sure they did. I don't know about the gold being paid out. <laughs> right. I, I would watch a movie about a bumbling assassin who who's desperate for $10,000, and that's the exact amount of money. So he just has to jet on over to Africa and kill Idi Amin. Yeah, what's Forrest Whitaker doing? He could reprise the role. Yeah, but who would be the uh, the bumbling assassin? I'm thinking, hear me out, Pauly Shore. <laughs> Like, whoa. I think that's a little too bumble. Total shootage, dude. <laughs> that's after he gets shot. Oh, I see. Robert Spearman called the number that was associated with that ad around the same time as Anita's surgery. I, th- I think the double mastectomy. Oh, my God. And offered to pay $20,000 for his wife's death. Did he give a reason? Well, when the assassins were questioned about this later on, they said that he pitched it initially as a mercy killing. My wife is in such pain. I just can't stand to see her this way. Okay. But in later conversations with them, he apparently admitted that her disease was, quote, just getting on my nerves. Wow. So I'll let that sink in for a moment. Wow. As someone who unfortunately has that kind of cancer uh, in their family, that is that is horrifying and, and cold and terrible. And puts the breast fr- flower arrangement in a whole new light. He does not have a sense of humor. I, I concede. So let's talk about Richard Doc Savage. Mm. Uh, as I said, Doc served in Vietnam. He really was... No, I'm sorry. Was he the one who placed the ad? He was. Okay, so... It's not necessarily Sean, this other guy, Dietrich. or like any of his associates. He's the one placing the ads and, and scheduling everything. He placed this ad. Okay. As I said, ads like this were not uncommon in Soldier right. of Fortune at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, a few of the, he actually hooked up with a few of these guys through, they had also put <laughs> ads in the, in the paper and then called, they sort of called each other and went like, you guys want to link up? Sort of a LinkedIn for murder. Mm-hmm. So after he left the military, Richard Savage got a degree in police administration. And he took that degree and spent three years as a prison guard in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and then he went to Lindsay, Oklahoma to be a cop, uh, but he only lasted about six weeks. How was his time in Vietnam? We don't know a lot about his time in Vietnam, actually. It's probably bad, right? Well, everyone's time in Vietnam <laughs> was pretty bad. Yeah. So... Okay. Uh, you know, there's it's the old story of some people just can't leave the war mm-hmm. abroad mm-hmm. and have a really hard time making making ends meet, making a living, finding a new career path, you know, after... We just talked about this a couple weeks ago. We did. And um, Richard Savage's attempts to... Um, attempts to... Kind of jump into civilian life. Yeah, we're... Um, I, I would say they got incre- decreasingly normal, increasingly less normal as time went on. So why did he only last six weeks as a cop? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I just know that he was a cop for six weeks. Uh, okay. One of his other partners will tell you why he left police work, but um, yeah, he just couldn't hack it. Six weeks as a cop in Lindsay, Oklahoma, and that was the last time he would ever work in law enforcement. Apparently, Savage then took a job as an insurance adjuster for a time. That didn't last. He tried to get a restaurant off the ground. That didn't go. Mm. Uh, Came around to 1982. And wouldn't you know it, the World's Fair was being held (laughs) in Knoxville, Tennessee. 
These assholes love the World's Fair. Oh, it's classic H.H. Uh, Holmes mm-hmm. behavior. Um, old Doc Savage thought, oh, here's where I'm going to cash in. And he opened a motel in nearby Gatlinburg where he thought he'd be able to make money hand over fist. Uh, unfortunately, the 1982 World's Fair was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. And it was a huge failure. And so, so was the motel. Do they still have the World's Fair? Uh, no, the, this um, nineteen eighty two, I think, came after, if I'm not mistaken, kind of a long gap, and they were just trying to try it again. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that there was one in the '60s in New York because my dad went to that. Um, but yeah, I haven't really heard any others. I think Twitter is the World's Fair now. Isn't that comforting? Well, it's certainly a circus. So after that motel failed, Doc, I guess, converted it into a nursing home which also failed. Uh, <laughs> conditions in that nursing home must have just been great. Yeah. You would imagine. Yeah, so great. And so after the series of jobs that didn't stick and then the series of failed businesses, Richard Savage was deeply in debt when he took over a strip joint called the Continental Club. <laughs> Very continental. I believe this was in 1983, but in any case, he was still the owner in 1985. Could you get a continental breakfast there? Some some dry cereals? Buffet. And... Con- continental breakfast buffet. <laughs> Eat a donut out of a stripper's G-string or something. Um, that may have been exactly what Richard Savage was doing on the day in June 1985 when he wrote up the little ad that he ended up placing in Soldier of Fortune. Now, this placement cost him $87. Not cheap. And the text again, gun for hire. <laughs> 37-year-old professional mercenary, desires jobs, Vietnam veteran, discreet and very private, bodyguard, courier, and other special skills, all jobs considered. And the classifieds editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine did a giant rail of cocaine and went, oh, this this looks fine. This is is on the up and up. That's another one. (laughs) That's what they said mostly in the editorial department at Soldier of Fortune at the time. That's another one. it's, It's all good. And the offers started rolling in more or less immediately. Mm-hmm. Most of the calls and letters that Savage got were from guys looking for someone to kill their wives. Yep, that'll happen. But he also got some interest from guys who were looking to make money killing other people's wives. And so Savage started putting a team together. I don't got anybody to kill, but I I could kill if you want. I like the idea... <laughs> Of killing, (laughs) but I'm not seeing a lot of growth in the marketplace. (laughs) Now, in July of 1985, just a month after Savage's ad, a similar ad in Soldier of Fortune was placed by a Michael Wayne Jackson of East Texas. (laughs) He he. Uh, In his ad, Jackson described himself as a nom sniper, which was patently not true. Um, But while he was in the Navy, because he was a veteran, and he did see some action over Guam. Um, So the Nam Sniper was just kind of a catchy way to market himself. Guam Sniper. And and these are great um, resume tips for for all the kids out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to make anything up, but you want to make yourself sound as impressive as you can. So I'm I'm thinking of the the film version of this. We got the Idi Amin story going. This is kind of like Ocean's Eleven for dickheads. It's kind of like... The Wolf of Wall Street, but about hillbilly murderers. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting into it. Now, Michael Jackson, he, he, 
Who who? Had a degree in criminology. Mm. And was once police chief of Tatum, Texas for three weeks. <laughs> okay. Uh, apparently, the job didn't last because Jackson continually was dragging cuffed suspects through city council chambers during their meetings. Okay. It's like, how many suspects is he putting away? The, this well, also, I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, he's putting away the suspects. But so. how, how much are they meeting? Yeah. Once a week? Well, it- they did it at least three times if they're meeting once a week. So he should have probably figured out by the third time that he shouldn't be doing that. Um, Mike was described as a gun nut. Apparently, his favorite thing to do, apart from thumbing through the latest Soldier of Fortune, was just standing out in his yard in front of the barn, trying to see how fast he could quick draw his revolver and shoot the barn door. Mm. He also loved admitting that the kid is not my son. (laughs) Hee hee. Jackson was once arrested for shooting a dog in his front yard. Well, the two little boys who owned the dog looked on in horror and confusion. Uh, So obviously Richard Savage liked the cut of this guy's jib and uh, put him right on the payroll. Yeah. Great. Over time, the gang would attract more members. Um, Savage's girlfriend, Deborah Mattingly, got involved pretty early on. There was also the aforementioned Sean Trevor Dutra, Mm -hmm. a Florida fisherman who came to Knoxville for the thrill of murder for hire. A Toronto teenager named Dean DeLuca. Mm. And a former Knoxville security guard, a local boy named William Buckley. Not the one from the National Review. (laughs) Um, And between all of them, they still didn't have enough hands, eyes, and ears to answer all the phones. There was just too much business to handle. And the group seems to have turned a lot of jobs away because there were so many requests. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of places to find guns for hire because it's not legal. Um, so I guess it is a very specialized business. Absolutely. With with super inelastic demand, you'd imagine. <laughs> You're never going to change the number of people. Men are always trying to kill their wives. Sean. Uh, <laughs> one woman called, a Mary Alice Wolf, called wanting a woman named Victoria Brashier killed in lexington kentucky uh sean trevor dutra du- she stole my lasagna recipe maybe sean dutra was sent uh to take care of it and when he got there he saw the potential victim and went yeah she's too pretty he just didn't do it okay all right um the other jobs they would pursue doggedly for months partly because of their own incompetence in coverage of this story and by the way uh i do want to thank both the palm beach post uh who had great coverage of this this year that kind of put it on my radar but also the la times whose coverage at the time there's a great article you can still find from back in 87 um that really covers this case in in a a lot of depth and then it lessened the amount of court records i had to look up to to do this story So so it was helpful a lot of the press coverage of this case refers to these assassins as bumbling. <laughs> like the word bumbling is used a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and on June 3rd, 1985, Deborah Mattingly took a call from a man named Richard Foster of Rochester, Minnesota. Richard. <laughs> Not Minnesota. That's Fargo. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, oh, hey. Oh, yeah. I'd like to I'd like to kill my wife. Hey, this is just uh, Rich Foster there having a little <laughs> trouble with my business partner. <laughs> 
Um, and he was. He was having trouble with his business associate, Harold Hayes. Mm-hmm. You see, Foster had bought the pub bar in Rochester from Hayes back in June of 1984, the previous year. And as part of their agreement, Hayes agreed to work there for six months to train Foster and help out and show him how to run the place. Um, But toward the end of that tenure, he started making plans to buy the 63 Club bar in April of 1985. And uh, Foster was pissed about this. Why? Well, though there was nothing in the contract about it, he felt that the two of them had kind of a a wink-nod, handshake agreement not to compete in town. And so he was affronted that uh, this guy Hayes would be opening another bar. Never depend on a wink and a nod. No, get it in writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hadn't. And so, Savage, Mattingly, William Buckley, and a woman named Linda Smith, who I'm going to guess that was Buckley's girlfriend or something. Because uh, she's not mentioned anywhere else. These four headed to Rochester. The plan being for Savage and Buckley to stage a mugging of Harold Hayes outside of his bar where they would take all his money and break his legs. So not kill him. Not kill him, just teach him a lesson. Okay. And Foster was going to pay them, apparently, in six hand grenades and an electronic bug detector. So we're working on the barter system. Yeah, I mean, why not? Bug-like listening device, not like uh, mosquitoes. This is a non-taxable endeavor, so... Yeah, very true, but that's all the more reason to be paid in cash. I don't know. Again... (laughs) I mean, I'm never going to barter in hand grenades, but, you know, I'm not going to yuck their yum. Again, I guess we're in a niche market, um, so you're going to take what you can get. So, when it came time to do the mugging, and remember, this is June 3rd, Savage and Buckley had a stun gun and brass knuckles that they brought with them to Rochester. And then as a game time decision on the day, they were like, oh, it doesn't feel like enough. And they went to the sporting goods store and bought an ax handle. Just the handle. I assume you have to buy the ax and then take the head off, but they just had the handle hmm. and they wrapped it up in tape. Mm-hmm. And they were lying in wait in a wooded area near the 63 club for, Harold Hayes to come on out and, you know, get his knees broken. With a stick. With a stick. (laughs) And uh, brass knuckles. Yes. But uh, there were too many people around. Customers, bouncers, uh, visitors. And so they had just ended up going home. They waited for the rest of the night. It it felt like the moment wasn't right. And they just literally went home to Knoxville. Oh, all the way home. Okay. Um, Buckley would later testify he saw Savage with the hand grenades. So I think this was a payment in advance kind of thing. Mm. And they just left. Okay. But they owed Richard Foster. Remember, they got the hand grenades. So, (laughs) So in early July, Buckley and Savage returned to the pub bar to get another mission from Foster. So now this is like a Grand Theft Auto situation at, at this point where they like walk into a dusty room and there's an icon over his head and or uh another settlement needs your help yes it's it's preston garvey <laughs> and so what settlement needed it, this by the way really sounds like a maybe not grand theft auto but a, a red dead redemption or mm. fallout uh kind of side mission this time foster wanted them to go to fertile iowa to blow up a poultry shed that's not just a description that you're saying. It's the town's oh, the, name. The Fertile Hills of Iowa. <laughs> no, it's a town called Fertile Iowa. And, mm. and they were supposed to blow up a poultry shed to teach a lesson to another business associate. Mm. 
the shed in question was owned by William Keogh Jr. Keogh! And that makes it sound like it's a chicken shack, you know? But uh, uh, Keogh was actually in the exotic bird feather business. So this would be a shed that had uh, a storage shed full of uh, exotic ostrich feathers and things. Mm Mm-hmm. Keogh was in other business as well uh, because he happened to owe Foster $3,000 for recent prior cocaine deals. Mm. And so Foster paid $1,500 for them to bomb the shed. And uh, the, the boys went out to Iowa and used a couple of smoke bombs to start a fire in this guy's uh, uh, chicken shed. And wouldn't you know it, on a 40-minute timer, the bombs worked perfectly and uh, the crew had pulled off their first successful job. Well, if I know anything from explosions via Looney Tunes, there were probably (laughs) plenty of feathers left over afterward. That's true. They float down slowly from the sky. Mm -hmm. But it was still time to pay up on the main job, the original job. And so the following evening, the boys returned to complete the mugging on Hayes at the 63 Club. So they're there. They they park back in their same little wooded... Uh, area outside of the bar. This club's about to become the 62 Club. They've got their stun gun. They've got their brass knuckles. Uh, they've got an axe handle. And then Hayes came out of the bar. All the cust- They waited this time for all the customers to leave. Probably good, a good, good strategy. Good plan, yeah. But then Hayes came out of the bar with a pistol. And he had another guy with him who was just holding a shotgun casually. <laughs> and so they looked down at their axe handle... And their brass knuckles and said, okay, we better go back to town. We'll come back tomorrow. We're not going all the way home. And then on their drive back to town, they were stopped by police and questioned uh, and released. But that kind of spooked the boys and they ended up going home to Knoxville again. All right. So second attempt. Remember, this isn't even a murder. They're just supposed to break his legs, scare this guy. And they have not been able to do it. Mm-hmm. It actually is an early quest. They're getting scared. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a quest you get in uh, Skyrim early on, actually. Sure. <laughs> sure. Now, they were doing other... That was early July. They were doing other jobs, including successfully murdering people, unfortunately, in the in-between. And we'll come back to what they were doing in that time uh, later. But I just want to finish the Hayes job here. On August 10th... <laughs> Someone has to. See, yeah, well, these guys aren't... Well, But they did. Well, did they? On August 10th, it was time to get this job done. And Savage returned to Rochester with Buckley and with Michael Jackson. Hee <laughs> hee. Hoo hoo. The men built a bomb in their motel room. They had looked up how online. <laughs> there wasn't any online. <laughs> yeah, we're... <laughs> they, they, anarchist's cookbook? I don't know. You can, you, can, I'll, you can find out how to make a bomb, Care. Okay. Freak. And then Foster came by with a couple of Uzis and magazines... Um, I don't know if this was additional payment or, you know, uh, fortifications for the job or, or, or what. This was kind of more of a stealth mission, so I don't know what the Uzis... They didn't come into play, so I don't know <laughs> what they were for. Uh, and Savage told Foster that Jackson he, was there to be Foster's bodyguard. Mm-hmm. So the boys went out, they planted the bomb after the 63 Club was closed and all the customers went home and all the people with guns left the building. Um, and then after the bomb was planted, Savage, Doc Savage, and William Buckley got out of town and headed to Louisville. And meanwhile, Jackson stayed in Rochester with Foster. This was allegedly to protect him against violent repercussions for the bombing. <laughs> okay. Like this guy Hayes was going to come after him 
you know, with Uzis, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, the bomb never went off. Mm. They watched the place. They kept coming back. No fire had started. And so uh, early in the morning, Jackson just snuck back in and got the bomb. <laughs> okay. He and Foster would rebuild it in their motel room the following day and replant the bomb the following night. And this time, there was a partial explosion that broke the glass door of the club. Ooh. And nothing else. Okay. So it was time to build another bomb, which they did the following day. This was now August 12th. And in the third attempt, Jackson placed this new bomb in a garage under the club, thinking we'll get some cars and and gasoline going, and that's really going to do some damage. Um, But then this bomb still didn't go off. Jesus. And Jackson just went home to Tennessee. Yeah. The police found that third bomb in the club later later that afternoon, and it's one of many threads that would begin being tugged on this murder-for-hire gang. So it just got left there. How did they know that there was a bomb in the garage? Was it just out? Yeah. They just so found, the next person saw it? Yeah, they just oh, found... God. When he came in to open the bar, he just found an unexploded bomb in his bar. Wow. And it was the, again, third attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are the boys doing so far? Not great. Not great. How did they successfully kill anyone? I don't know. Um, And you see why bumbling comes into uh, uh, play a lot here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we are going to get into the rest of the criminal hijinks and mischief and mayhem of Richard Savage and his team of murderous thugs. Can't wait. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Welcome back. We are talking about Murder for Hire, specifically the Murder for Hire plot run by a man improbably called Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. In 1985 and 86. Caroline, what did you think of the uh, first half of this story? Um, are you surprised that these guys got away with anything? I am, because they're a bunch of stew nods, obviously. Um, so we started kind of at the end there with Anita's death. Yeah, Anita's death is one of the later ones, and yeah. we will touch on her murder again. So who have they managed to kill so far? Uh, managed to? 
nobody... We haven't really talked about them being successful at it yet. No, we just talked about them trying to mug Harold Hayes. Yes, and blowing up a chicken coop. Successfully. Okay, they killed some chickens or, or ostriches No, or I think it was just feathers. I have to emphasize. <laughs> okay, I, I think they it killed was, some feathers. It was a storage shed uh, at an exotic feather. I, I don't know that any birds died. Mm-hmm. Um, but the group was still, it was their first success. Riding high. And the group was still riding high in late July of 1985, when 47-year-old Alice Bredo of Aurora, Colorado, contacted the gang. See, it's not just men asking for their wives to be killed. Mm-hmm. Alice Bredo wanted them to kill her boyfriend, Dana Free, of Marietta, Georgia. Mm. I don't know. It seems like they weren't super close because they... Well, literally, physically, they were not. Right. Um, and probably emotionally at this point. Well, we, she's hiring people to murder him. So um, apparently Alice had lent Dana a lot of money. Like something in the tens of thousands of dollars range. Mm-hmm. Uh, for an investment scheme that had gone awry immediately. Sure. I'm not sure what exactly it was, but flying pillows, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Flying pillows, Carrie. It's a great idea because then you can rest your head anywhere. Hmm. So in an effort to recoup her losses, Alice had taken out a $500,000 insurance policy and hired Doc and his gang for 20000 to kill her boyfriend. <laughs> okay. Now, as I said, Dana was living in Marietta, Georgia, so this was a hike for this crew. I mean, Dutra was traveling all over the country to do these jobs, mm-hmm. um, but this, yeah, this is quite, quite a, a hike from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I think a bunch of them went because it's Deborah Mattingly who was credited with helping the group find where Dana Free had parked his car. So this is like Amy Schumer with big teased out hair, I think, in the film version, Deborah Mattingly. Okay. Yeah, sure. So she's probably yelling a lot. She's a little yelly on the phone. Oh, absolutely. On the phone, doing a, calling Dana and pretending to be a traffic officer or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. Um, so she helped find where he parked his car, however <laughs> she did that. Okay. And then William Buckley, again, not William F. Buckley of the National Review, I must hasten to point out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, ex-security guard William Buckley, who I think was the most reluctant, or at least he was the one who spilled the beans the fastest when all this was was over. Uh, Michael Jackson, he he, tried to give him a run for his money, but but I think Jackson really liked doing all this stuff. Mm. He just really would rather everybody else get in more trouble than him. When they found the car, William Buckley attached two hand grenades to the underside on July 31st. So this is a truly wily coyote. Literal like wet bandits shit. Like, let's let's be the grenade killers. And then you really have to hope you picked the right car. Sure. You um, don't want to catch a nun on her grocery run. Well, they did. No. No, they did pick the right car. Oh, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately for Dana Free. And so Dana... Got into his car the next day, started it up, and drove around all day doing errands with no incidents whatsoever. Just with two unexploded grenades Ugh. jangling around underneath One his car. One wrong speed bump, and oh my god. Um, he didn't even know anything was happening, which was not the intended effect. And so uh, Buckley returned overnight on August 1st to readjust the grenades. <sighs> Okay. Like, because you have to make sure pressure is being put on the pin so that when the car pulls out, uh, at least one of the pins goes. Yeah. 
And so that's what he did. And so on August 2nd, Dana came back, he got into his car in the morning, started it up, and heard a loud pop under the hood. And then smoke, you know, tons of smoke started coming from his hood and into the cabin of the car. So Dana hopped out and looked underneath the car and saw one still unexploded grenade hanging underneath there. And then he got the fuck out of Dodge, I would think. Uh, He did. He went into hiding with his ex-wife who lived in Houston. Uh Uh-oh. So forcing (sighs) old lovers together. Probably not Alice's intention. No, certainly not. It, Um, It wasn't over, Carrie. Okay. Later... First of all, by the way, his car wasn't even a total. <laughs> it was. It, it needed repairs, but they didn't even manage to kill They Dana's. don't make them like that anymore, Sean. They didn't manage to kill Dana's car, let alone Dana. Um, now, later that month, two more hand grenades. This is like a bad penny. Uh, two more hand grenades would go flying through the living room window of Dana's ex-wife's house. But nobody was in the room at the time. Because they had fled in a lover's retreat, right? No, they were in the house. They oh, just Jesus. They just weren't in the room. Did they explode? Yes. Sean, I don't want to encourage bad behavior, um, but why didn't they just hide behind a bush and shoot these people? Why go through all of the fucking theatrics? Well, that's like with um, sort of ga- like Gabriel Princeps. Isn't that the guy who killed uh, Franz Ferdinand? Oh, Gavrilo. Gavrilo Princep. His first uh, plan was to chuck a hand grenade at the guy, and obviously... Yeah, but that, that was work. the early 1900s. Things have evolved. Yeah, but similarly, the hand grenade didn't work. Later on, he just saw him at a cafe and went, oh, there's the guy, and shot him. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what works. Okay. Now, unfortunately, because you're exactly right, and unfortunately, I think Sean... Dutra was the most effective operator in this crew because that is exactly how he handled the murder of Richard Braun Mm -hmm. on August 26th of 1985. Um, Braun was an Atlanta businessman who was doing pretty well because he was pulling his Mercedes out of his driveway with his 16-year-old son Michael in the car when Sean Trevor Dutra walked up, just stood in the driveway shot Braun with a Mac 11 handgun as the car pulled out a um, bunch of times. And Braun fell, car door opened, Braun slid out of the car and fell face down into the driveway while his 16-year-old son, Aww. who had been hit in the thigh, rolled out of the car onto the ground on the other side. Apparently, Dutra, Michael would later testify that Dutra walked over to him and pointed the gun, but then just made a shh sign with his finger over his lips and then bolted on foot. Hmm. Michael would watch his father bleed to death. That's so sad. In the driveway. Now, why why was this man killed? Uh, one of Braun's business partners had hired the gang to get him out of the way, I think just because, like, we'd like a bigger chunk of the company for ourselves, please. Well, I'm never getting married and I'm never owning a business. Oh, no. <laughs> Oops. No, but genuinely, that's that's very sad, and people are shit, and that's a that's that's a bummer, I guess. I mean, it's 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 sad that they actually got this one right in a way for them. Yeah. Now, Michael and his older brother Ian, you asked before, Carrie, how could this stuff be published? Um, Michael and his older brother Ian asked the same question, and they would later sue Soldier of Fortune yeah. magazine. Um, and they won over $12 million in a federal court for uh, the magazine running the ad in the first place. And they had to pay a lot 
of money. Uh, they might have gone bankrupt in this. Um... Yeah, now it's just called Soldier Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yeah. So- Soldier of Twine. Um, because this wasn't the only lawsuit by ex-victims. Of course. And, yeah, As there should be. <laughs> they published this. Another man who would later sue Soldier of Fortune magazine for running that ad in the first place, and he was going to be good at it, was Doug Norwood. The reason Doug was especially ready to sue, because he was a 30-year-old law student in 1985 at the University of Arkansas. And he was enjoying law, but what he was really enjoying was the hot young thing he was seeing, uh, a lady named Kathy Gray, and things were going quite well in this relationship. Except that Kathy's estranged husband, Larry Gray, had called Doc Savage in Knoxville, Tennessee. No, twist. I thought they were going to kill Larry. Oh, no, they're going to kill Doug. Aww. So, August 30th at 8.30 a.m., Doug Norwood was in his apartment um, just off campus. He was on the phone, actually, with the financial aid office, apparently, because that is the life of a grad student. Mm-hmm. When there was a knock at the door. So, uh, still on the phone, he opened the door and kind of gestured for the two guys standing in the hall to come in. And he's going, yes, yeah, okay, I've got to call you later. I've got some company. Um, And as he hung up, the two men, who were the teenaged Dean DeLuca and William Buckley. Okay, so Dean DeLuca is probably like, mm, I'm thinking like an overgrown teenager, like a Jay Baruchel. I think, oh, I was thinking you get one of those Stranger Things. Oh, a, a Stranger Thing. Get one of the Stranger Things to play him. Mm, mm-hmm. And Eddie Munson. Eddie Munson might look too old, even. No, mm. Eddie Munson's perfect. Or a Finn, a Finn Wolfinghard. Yeah, Finn Wolf, although, uh, honestly, he's a little overexposed. We could use a little... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I loved him in It, but uh, come on, guys. Wow. Tough breaks, Finn. <laughs> Give me more Dustin, please. That's Sweeney Todd. Yeah, I know. Okay. No, we're going to go. Okay. Uh, I need to finish this story. Yes, yes. I'm so excited about Sweeney Todd. <laughs> DeLuca and Buckley introduced themselves as private investigators and said they were looking into another law student at the University of Arkansas, and they just wanted to ask him a couple of questions. I think that's Buckley speaking, but almost before he finished the sentence, DeLuca charged at Doug oh, with, no. charged at Doug while producing an electric stun gun from inside his shirt. They're always using these gadgets. Well, I, it's probably the same stun gun that they didn't use on Harold Hayes a few yeah, the month before. Right. Now Norwood, as this guy's charge kid is charging at him, defensively kicked out and caught DeLuca in the chest, apparently breaking four of his ribs. Oof. Um, so while DeLuca's recovering from that, though, meanwhile, Buckley had apparently grabbed Norwood's rifle, which, you know, secure that thing, Doug. What, it's just lying on the ground? Like in his dorm? It's an apartment, but yeah. Jeez. So Buckley had grabbed Norwood's own rifle and shot him in the shoulder. Mm. He's running, obviously, at this point. Um, fled down the hall with gunshots ringing out behind him, uh, down a long, long, like... Horribly at in this situation, horribly long giant balcony that he had in this apartment, mm-hmm. um, and caught another bullet in the leg as he hit the bottom of the stairs. Pranged it, made it about half a block, and collapsed in a parking lot. And Doug looked up to see a couple who were standing by a running car, um, and he cried out to them for help. You know, call the police. I'm bleeding. There's guys after me. Uh, and the couple looked at each other, and then back up at the apartments. 
They got in the car and left. Now, this wasn't like Deborah and like... Deborah and Richard? I fucking knew it. It sure was. I knew it. And they were waiting for DeLuca and Buckley uh, as the getaway drivers. But um, you know, And you might think like, oh, it's rude of them to, to drive away. But that was because they could see that DeLuca and Buckley were actively running the wrong direction. Okay. So they ran the wrong way for the getaway car. Okay. Well, at least Doug's still alive. Doug is still alive. But this investigation didn't go well for him at first. Uh, first, because he failed a polygraph test. Doug. About the incident. The yeah. victim. Doug. Okay. Meanwhile, Larry Gray, who was the obvious first suspect because he was the angry, you know, kind of ex-husband. I don't think they were divorced yet, but ex-husband effectively of, of uh, Doug's girlfriend. Larry passed a lie detector test saying that he hadn't hired anyone. And it wouldn't be until later that police it's found bunk out. bunk science, folks. It is bunk science. And it wouldn't be until later that police found out that Larry Gray had actively sought advice for beating polygraph tests and had taken several practice tests before the police got to him. But from the police's perspective, here's this bearded law student from Florida, and prosecutors saw that as a big cocaine state. What does the beard have to do with it? He, he's, he, it's the 80s, so he's got a big, he kind of looks like a drug guy. They, he looks like the Hans Booby guy from Die Hard. 100%. And he's got a <laughs> mysterious gunshot wound. They, they think this is a cocaine Ew. deal gone wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Norwood got back home from the hospital and the police station, he found the stun gun that Dean had used on him literally still lying on the floor. Mm. and several bullets that had been fired from his rifle were still in the wall because police hadn't bothered prying them out for ballistics. Oh, my God. So Doug Norwood's getting nowhere with camp. This is campus police. He's getting nowhere with campus police. The the real police didn't want to come in on this one? Well, in some places, and University of Arkansas is one of them, um, It's their university police aren't like rent-a-cops. They're like an actual police department. Yeah, you say so, and then they're not doing any actual investigative work, so... No, which makes it all the worse that they do have actual jurisdiction. Ugh. Meanwhile, the killers still had Doug dead in their sights. Not dead, but in their sights. <laughs> On October 1st of 1985, a couple months later, things were going even better. Uh, Kathy Gray had moved closer, and she and Norwood were getting closer in their relationship. By the way, it's a cute story. They remain married today and run a law practice together in Arkansas. Okay. Well, I like that happily ever and af- uh, happily ever after spoiler because um, I was getting real sad. I already said Doug sued these guys later or sued F- Soldier of Fortune. That's true. Yes. On the morning of October 1st, Doug was driving Kathy's Ford Escort and he went and parked in the University Stadium parking lot to go and do his business on campus. When he came back and started the car, wouldn't you know it? There was a loud pop from under the hood and then a lot of smoke. They're just hanging grenades under people's car like those truck nuts. (laughs) (laughs) This time they had actually built a bomb this time, but we know how good they are at building bombs. Yeah. And so the bomb, just like the one at the club before, only partially exploded (sighs) and did enough damage to damage the car but again not total it i don't think and not kill anyone inside they don't make them like that anymore sean 80s give me an 80s uh, ford escort i guess hmm. sure <laughs> university police still found norwood's story a little weird 
I mean, it's weird, but it's not his fault. When he went back to them this time, he had a whole story about, I think someone's out to kill me. And I think they first tried before he even got back to campus. Because when I was still in Florida, this woman, see, she, she said she also went to University of Arkansas. She was trying to get back here and she wanted to travel back together. But then she had to move the location. She asked if I could pick her up in Memphis. And when I got there, there was just some weird muscular kid sitting there. <laughs> Big, thick kid. And was it was it Deborah? It was. It would later come out that it was Deborah, and I think it was Dean. Fucking knew it. So he's right about all this, but as he's telling the story... It sounds insane, because it is. And the campus police felt that he was remembering like names and even motel room numbers, like two specifically, and it just felt like a lie. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they were getting annoyed because he was calling like every day to say that he was being followed. (laughs) This poor man. But finally, the police heeded Norwood's call and found the Ford sedan that he said he had seen following him. And what do you know? The police saw it following him. They saw it, you know, behind him. And they uh, went up and said, okay, let's, let's see what this is about, I guess. And they found that the sedan was driven by a pleasant man who uh, introduced himself as Michael Wayne Jackson. He flashed a badge. You're not even going to use like a fake name for your name that's very memorable. Well, he was flashing a badge to explain that he was the former police chief of Tatum, Texas. And he, I'm just looking into a few of the programs around here, you know, you know, flip the wallet closed and, and hope what? that'll get you through. It's like psychic paper with yes. Doctor Who. Um. But as he was doing all this, cops, and by the way, police always work in partners, and, and there's a reason, because one of them was talking to Michael Jackson, <laughs> while the other one was taking observation of his surroundings and seeing an assault rifle poking out from under a blanket in the back seat. Ho, ho. And a pistol with a silencer taped under the steering wheel. Now, those are both illegal. Yeah. In Arkansas, even then. So Jackson was arrested by university police. He certainly didn't have permits for him. And he basically immediately started talking about all the bombings and shootings. He's bad. He's bad. You know it. (laughs) But it would take months for them to verify and track down everything that Jackson was telling them and admitting to. And it would take them a while to even believe him Mm -hmm. that there were other people involved and this wasn't just his assault rifle. But the rest of the gang was still out there. On October... Tito, LaToya, others. Oh, not that, not the Jackson 5, sorry. <laughs> I don't think LaToya was ever in the 5. She was around. She's the 7th. <laughs> um, on October 30th of 1985, Mary Thielman and her three children boarded a flight from Austin to Dallas-Fort Worth. Her husband, Albert, was not with them, um, but he had sent them on the trip as a surprise. Hey, guys, you're going to Dallas-Fort Worth today. Yippee. Yeah, I don't know what this was to celebrate in particular, um, but Albert might have been celebrating the fact that he just took out a $2 million life insurance policy on his wife and children. How obvious can you be? And how sick? When people take these massive life insurance policies... And then they get so excited that they can't wait for more than a month. It's like, yeah, we know it's you. Well, Albert Thielman needed the money now. Uh, He was a bad, bad boy. And cocaine addiction, gambling addiction, and a series of extramarital affairs had left him deeply in debt that he couldn't tell his wife or, uh, you know, the law about. Mm -hmm. And so he called Savage to, as he saw it, take care of the problem. 
why kill the kids too? Well, you're going to cut down a lot of your expenses that way. He's just trying to balance the books. Sick. Mary Thielman's flight went more or less without incident. Although after landing in Dallas, there was a, a small pop from the cargo hold. You're joking. As an explosion went off. They tried to bring down the entire plane? And a thin wisp of smoke slowly kind of protruded from the bottom of the plane and through the cabin, but there were no injuries on board. Mm. Mary was chilled to the bone, though, when she heard that the bomb, the explosion seemed to have originated in her cosmetics case. Uh Uh-oh. It was placed there by Albert, police determined, after being purchased from Richard Savage and company, hence the terrible bomb. And yeah, Carrie, there were 154 people aboard the plane. See, that's the thing. It might not be my time to go, but maybe it's Mary's. And I'm just going with her? Absolutely not. Uh, It's brutal. Uh, Luckily, the bomb only went off after the plane landed and actually only did $1,200 in damage to the plane. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so even if it had happened in flight, I think, I think they probably would have just made, done an emergency landing and been okay. Wow. But these guys tried, this guy tried to hire someone to bring down an airliner full of people. But he didn't really. He just, he hired someone to give him a grenade, basically. A bomb. They made a little bomb. Okay. Yeah. All right. The worst bomb makers ever, which is good. A hundred percent. Good for everyone else. Not good for them. That'll return us to Anita Spearman, the last successful, quote-unquote, murder committed by this gang. And again, Anita was killed on November 16th of 1985. Mm. Her husband, Robert, had hired... This piece of shit. Savage for $20,000. Now, if you remember, Sean Trevor Dutra was arrested not long after committing this murder but he posted bond and fled before police could figure out who they had. I'm thinking this is Sebastian Stan, but as Jeff Galuli from I, Tonya. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say Sebastian the Crab, but Sebastian Stan's <laughs> good casting too. Mm-hmm. Now, another gang member, Rob- Ronald Emert, or Emert, I don't know, had, had also been involved in the uh, Spearman scheme. He'd, he'd handled some of the money. He took some money from Robert Spearman and got it to Savage. Uh, he ended up feeling like the heat was being turned up a little too high. If yeah. your conspiracy gets too large, this will always happen. Mm-hmm. And so when Emmert was arrested, he immediately turned state's evidence. Robert Spearman, Anita's husband, got life plus 20 years in prison. Good. He sucks. Well, he had no intention of serving it. So... Spearman tried to pay two undercover police officers $55,000 to steal a helicopter... <laughs> <laughs> and, and bust him out of prison. Oh, the officers, turd. the officers tried to steal the helicopter, but were caught. Um, they actually did it. And his written instructions to the officers, written instructions, honey. We when we said put things in writing, we didn't mean this. Asked them to have two machine guns and four hand grenades on board, so he could use them to murder his prosecutor. <laughs> and I want you to release the members of the Golden Dawn. Yes. I read about them in Forbes. Uh, three days after this escape attempt was thwarted, Spearman was found hanging in his cell by his bedsheets. Rest in piss. Absolutely. Hilariously, in his suicide note, he says in part, Please forgive me for this. 
but it seems all the good judgment I have had through all the years has left me since Anita's death. I think it was before that. Since Anita's death? I think it was before that. And is it forgive me for the suicide or for the escape attempt? It's, he's not talking about the murder, it seems clear. Yeah, I don't know. <sighs> so, now all the threads were really coming together because you had obviously something going on in the Spearman case. You had obviously something going on in the Thielman case. You had obviously something going on in the Norwood case. Mm-hmm. And you had these other murders and attempted murders, Braun, Dana Free. Um, the threads started to come together. And in February of 1986, investigators into the Spearman murder were ready to move on to Sean Trevor Dutra and Richard Savage. But it turned out they were both already in jail. Mm. Uh, Sean Trevor Dutra had been arrested that month in Athens, Georgia, where he and Richard had traveled to kill a man for $4,000. So they're cutting their rates. Wow. Um, Was du- this Black Friday sale or something? Uh-huh. Um, as is kind of his MO, Dutra was picked up, I believe on a traffic violation, but had a bunch of guns in his car. And like Michael Jackson, he immediately, (laughs) he immediately started talking and Richard Savage, who happened to be in town for the job was the one they picked up next around this time. The investigations obviously around Spearman, but also Mary Thielman and Doug Norwood were coming together and indictments piled up for all the gang members, including Deborah, including William Buckley. Uh, Savage gave interviews from jail to local and national media in which he admitted posting the ad, but he said, I didn't know that people were going to ask me to murder people. (laughs) Okay. He said he was appalled and horrified at the kind of answers he got. He was shocked. I mean, I I did it, but I I didn't like it. No, he said, I do not kill people to inflict. (laughs) I, I hire people who kill people. To inflict pain is against everything I've been taught in the Bible. Okay. Uh, This defense was to no avail. Yeah. Uh, Sean Dutra would get life plus 30 years in prison. Um, Savage, who I don't think pulled the trigger on any of these victims, uh, got 40 years, and he ultimately died in prison in 2011. Brian Cranston, I think. For Doc Savage? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... He thinks he's a mastermind, but he's really not. See, you... If you watch more Breaking Bad, which... Uh, no, I, I'm going by just Brian Cranston's talent. I know, but I think, I think he's too, too intimidating to be, to be <laughs> Doc Savage. He's the dad from Malcolm in the Middle. No. He knows how to not be intimidating. He's got range. The man's got range. I, ju- I, tru- I just think Heisenberg <laughs> has too much gravitas, but, but, but we'll, we'll work on it, Carrie. Okay. We'll work on a pitch. Okay, okay. Um, so what do you think? What do you think of the, um, the bumbling assassinations of Doc Savage? Listen, all the failures are very funny, of course. Again, it's Ocean's Eleven for dickheads. Um, you know, there are very humorous aspects to it, but it's also very sad and tragic that they managed to get some of these people, um, you know, they managed to kill some people. Uh, and that's probably partially because the police weren't really putting things together like they should have been, even though there was evidence maybe everywhere. Um, you know, so these people... They were very inept operators. For right. Sure. So I think, much like s- several other cases we've discussed, the ineptitude of the investigation 
directly led to more people dying than really should have, you know, because I think it was just a question of time, like they had just more time to, to give it extra shots. And they gave two, three shots sometimes uh, to some of these. So it's obviously horrible that they were successful ever. Um, You're right. Their targeting of Harold Hayes was what three visits over three yeah. months, and uh, of course they still failed to yeah. do anything to Harold. So um, you know it it's sad for for the victims, and it's it's stupid for them, uh, for the the Doc Savage gang, as it were. And um, you know, good riddance, especially to Robert Spearman. Oh yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Let's take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. This past November, Heritage Auctions announced that they would be auctioning off 476 pieces of the famed Forest Fen treasure, finally found in 2020 by a man named Jack Stoof, as we previously reported. This was the riddle scavenger hunt by the eccentric millionaire. Mm-hmm. And the auction has now concluded with all of the items selling for a grand total of over $1.3 million. Now, as you mentioned, Sean, for those who need a refresher, Forrest Fenn was an eccentric art dealer who buried a collection of gold coins and artifacts in the Rocky Mountains back in 2010, publicly releasing clues to its discovery in hopes that the most intrepid adventurer would find it. It took a decade, but one did, Jack Stoof. And now it seems Jack is probably around a cool million dollars richer. Mm. The highest-priced item was a huge gold nugget weighing in at over a pound, which sold for $55,200. A sealed glass jar containing what is said to be a 22,000-word autobiography penned by Forrest Fenn himself went for a high price, too, at $48,000. So in the jar is a book or a little notebook or something? I assume a notebook or papers. Uh, 22,000 words isn't too crazy. Has anyone opened it? That I don't know. It was still sealed when it was auctioned off this week. The lowest price item at the auction was three grams of gold dust, which sold for a relatively reasonable $900. Sure, for Forrest Fenn gold dust? I mean, come on. Yeah. 
Now that Fenn's treasure is spread to all the auction winners, it will be separated for good, though the Heritage Auctions website offered a great look at every piece altogether, including other interesting trinkets like a Tyrona necklace from circa 500 to 1000 AD Colombia, frog pendants from circa 700 to 1000 AD Costa Rica or Panama, and many valuable antique gold coins. Most of the treasure was made up of gold nuggets of differing sizes, gold coins, and other gold ephemera. Wow. If I was going to bury a treasure, it would... Like, I guess we just have a bunch of dice in it and stuff. <laughs> like, I don't know what I could really have that I could... Uh... I think it would be more of a capsule than anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, rest in peace, Mr. Fenn, you crazy bastard. Uh, and, you know, congrats to everyone that got a little piece of the treasure at the auction. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess... But but there's something hits me wrong about being the like I wouldn't want to be the person who bought a piece of that treasure for half a million dollars or something. No, but I would buy something for like a hundred. Like this was part of a treasure cache, you know, like a little piece of gold dust or something, just to to put in my little curio cabinet. Yeah, that just feels like future shame because every time you show it to someone, you go, "Look, this was in a treasure cache." You heard of Forrest Fenn, and they go, "You found that?" And you go, "No, I bought it." I still think it's cool. I wouldn't pay $55,000 for anything, though. Well, nothing's that expensive here at the Bazaar Bazaar. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, we will. And special thanks, special gratitude, if you will. To our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, and Haley. We love you guys. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out and I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this, uh-huh. you go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.